In honor of God's word, please stand. And children ages three to first grade can join Mrs. Paget back at the back and uh, go upstairs for children's church. And don't forget to pick up your kids at the end. Although sometimes that's tempting. All right. Um, our scripture reading today is from Psalm 79. O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defied your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. The word of the Lord. morning would you please join with me in prayer father we pause again for just a moment um, because we realize how easy it can be sometimes to hear your word and yet not to hear it and so we want to pause so we might ask you and even remember that you are here and ask that you would help us to hear you that you would reshape our hearts, that you would draw us nearer to Jesus, that we might know him and trust him more fully. Please help me as I speak, help us as we listen, that your work might be done among us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it can happen so often that it becomes a cliche. A leader fails and he brings devastation in his wake. We know the story, we know how it takes place because we've seen it so frequently. It begins oftentimes with rumors, rumors being spread. Maybe it's on social media if it's a politician that we're talking about. Maybe it's gossip if it's a pastor. But eventually an announcement is made. A letter is written or a person stands in front of a microphone, sometimes with his spouse. And he states to everyone that he has failed. Maybe it's through infidelity, maybe corruption, maybe some other character flaw, but he 
confesses that he has betrayed the trust of those that he has been leading. He names, sometimes in vague terms, what he has done. He speaks of how horribly, deeply he regrets what he has done. He resigns from his post of leadership, and he steps out of the limelight, sometimes never to return to it. As I said, we know this drill. We have seen it again and again, so much so that we can become cynical, we can become jaded about it. But I wonder, even in the commonness of it, do we, do we often think what it will be like, what it must be like for this leader in those moments and after those moments? What is it like to, to be in this place of failure? I mean, no one ever sets out to cheat on their spouse. No one ever sets out to be one who embezzles. This is a failure that they did not plan on. And now, after they have done something so wrong, after they have made the announcement, and they have gone past that initial stress, they are looking down their life wondering what in the world they should do with it. I mean, what do you do? Your family oftentimes has left you. You have no more job. All that you've worked for has crumbled. You have worked for the respect of others and now you have none. What do you do when you fail in devastating fashion? Well, our psalm this morning is actually a psalm about a devastating failure. We see the devastation, especially in the first four verses. Um, almost certainly, this writer is speaking about the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC. Just quickly to give you some history, around that time, the, the leader of Jerusalem of Judah, the king, had made an allegiance with the powerful empire of the Chaldeans and then had broken it. And so in retribution, the Chaldean soldiers and army besieged Jerusalem for 18 months, 18 months where no one could get out, 18 months where no one no food could get in. And so slowly, the entire city was dying of starvation. There are records even of cannibalism. And eventually, at the point where they were at their weakest, 18 months in, the Chaldeans breached the city walls. Meanwhile, the, the king and his army, whatever remains, they find kind of a back door and they flee, hoping to get to their allies in time, but they're caught. And the soldiers now, who have no one to oppose them in the city, are brutal in their slaughter of anyone who even might oppose them. They burn down every expensive house. They burn down the palace. They destroy the city walls. They destroy the temple of God. And anyone who's even remotely wealthy is taken away to live in a totally different city in Babylon, and only the poorest are left to tend the land, so few that they can't even manage to bury all of the bodies. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see that? To have gone through 18 months of exhausting starvation only to see family members slaughtered, to see the house, your home, completely destroyed, to see the temple, that connection point between your God and you, put in ruins. The grief would have been overwhelming. Now, this psalm is written some years later, but still you can sense the tears that are running down his eyes when he's describing this. 
the first four verses really says it. You know, O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, to the, the flesh of your faithful, to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. And to make things even worse, if it's even possible for things to be worse, all of this was their fault. This was their failure. At a human level, it was their failure because of the way that they had wrongly betrayed their allegiance to, the, to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Chaldeans. But at an even deeper level, this was their failure. Because they had turned their back on God. They had worshipped other idols, even in the city of Jerusalem, right next to the temple. And God had allowed this to happen as a result. And they knew it. We know that they knew it. Even in this psalm, you see an awareness that the reason this took place was because of their failure. So you have in verse 5 him speaking of, will your jealousy burn like fire? God reveals himself in the Old Testament to be a jealous God. And that jealousy is a word specifically related to idolatry. God is the loving husband who will not allow his wife, Israel, to cheat on him with other idols. That's the jealousy being referred to here. So he's acknowledging we have cheated on you, God. Verse 9, sorry, verse 8, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Verse 9, atone for our sins. He connects this tragedy directly to how they have wronged God. There are sometimes, in fact, most of the times that tragedies will happen and there is no connection to anything we've done. Sometimes in this world, things just are wrong. But sometimes the tragedies we experience are direct consequences of things that we have done wrong. And this is one of those times. And he knows that because prophet after prophet warned God's people, do not keep doing this, do not keep worshiping false idols, return to the one who loves you, return to God, or you will experience destruction. Again and again they were warned, again and again they ignored it. And so this took place. And they failed. And how must it have been like for this? We've already spoken of the grief, but it's not just grief. Compounding the grief is deep, deep shame. Did you notice in those first four verses how the word your gets repeated? It was your inheritance, your temple, your people. And, and the awareness there is we have shamed you. We bear your name and now you you are being mocked by the nations because your place is being destroyed. They are experiencing deep shame for their failure and hopelessness. What do you do? How do you rebuild when everything is destroyed and you have failed your God, the one in whom the only hope you might have is found? You know, none of us have experienced quite what this psalmist has. You know, no one has experienced quite this devastation or this failure. But we know, we know, don't we, what it is to fail. Occasionally, some of us will go through failure that is really pronounced and really public. 
But even when it's not like this, we know what it is to fail, to be in a place that is through our own doing, to be filled with regret, with shame, with hopelessness. What do you do when you have failed in a devastating fashion? I mean, we know how it should begin, don't we? We know that it begins with acknowledging our sin, with confessing and repenting. And we see evidence that the psalmist already has done that. I mean, he's already acknowledged his sins. He speaks of our former sins, which shows that he has repented. They no longer are pursuing idols, but still they are in that place where they're still experiencing the consequence of their failure. So he is crying out, how long? What do you do when you are still in that darkness caused by your own failure? Well, you pray. What I'd like us to see here, because here I think this psalm gives us words for what to do when we're in those moments. And I'd like us to see three instructions that this psalm gives us. And the first one is, in these moments, do not let your failure drive you away from God, but rather drive you to God. Because the reality is, when we are in moments like this where we have realized just how much we have messed up, a natural inclination is for it to drive a wedge between us and our God. I mean, the grief alone can do that. Many of us know the story of Job. In Job, you have this man who, unlike this story, didn't do anything wrong, and yet he experiences similar devastation. His children die. His wealth is completely taken away. He is made sick with sores that torment him. He is brought low, and his wife, who is there with him, is so, so broken by this that she says, Job, why are you continuing to be faithful to God? Curse God and die. Grief has the potential in and of itself to bring our mood dark, to bring bitterness, to turn us away from God. But when you compound grief on top of that, when you have shame all the more, because shame keeps us from wanting to ever have to look God in the face in prayer. Think of the very great failure that starts in some ways, the story of humanity after creation, how Adam and Eve, when they failed God, what is the very first thing they do? They hide. Because that's what shame does. It makes you want to hide. You don't want to have to see the person that you have wronged. When we feel failure, when we experience shame, the last thing we want to do is pray. Because when we pray, we are reminded of what we've done wrong, and it's brought to our face, and we would rather just completely avoid it. Failure can drive us away from God if we are not careful, but it it must not. And what we see instead is this psalmist has the ability to allow failure to drive him to God. And I think the reason is because he understands two things. One is that God is the only one who can do anything about this. He has no no hope anywhere else. And two, he realizes that he does not need to somehow come to God in a polite and nice fashion. He can come to God exactly how he is. It's a theme that we came to a couple weeks ago when we spoke about how sometimes we just need to ask the raw questions. And we see that here as well, don't we? He asks the questions. In the midst of his failure, he says, how long, God, how long are you going to be angry? 
He asks the why question, why are you letting other nations look at us and, and just mock you? And he doesn't just ask questions, he also, he also names his desires. That can be the hardest thing in the world when we are ashamed to actually ask God anything. But we need to go against that impulse and even then ask God. And he does ask God. You see um, in verse 9, help us, O God, for our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us. Atone for our sins for your name's sake. He doesn't really even know what to ask for. He just knows he needs help. He says, help me, God. He brings his desire before God, and he even brings his anger. Uh, verse 10, why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Do you hear that anger? There's a longing for retribution. Let me ask you, when you pray, do you allow your anger to enter your prayer? It sounds inappropriate, doesn't it? We're not supposed to be angry. I'm not even talking about being angry with God. I'm talking about just being angry with other people before God. We feel like we should be polite in God's presence. But I think the psalmist understands something we don't. We, we don't need to get everything refined. Yes, whenever we're praying, we should remember that God is God. But if we think that we have to get everything fixed before we come to God, we're saying, really, all of this stuff that we have to deal with, we have to do on our own when the only one who really can deal with what we need to be dealt with is God. So why don't we bring our anger, our mess, our confusion to God and let him refine us and change us and deal with it as he wills? See, when we recognize that we don't have to make ourselves up, but that we can just be who we are and bring it to God and let him to deal with it, it allows us to let our failure draw us to God rather than drive us away from God. That's the first thing we see. The second instruction I think we see in this psalm is that when we are in these moments, we need to argue with God. Now, if I already sounded a little bit off by saying angry before God, I know this one sounds really like I'm kind of in the deep end at this point, but just so you know, this is actually some advice that I first came across in Tim Keller's book on prayer. So that means it's probably okay, right? But even more so, he was quoting J.I. Packer, which if you know anything, you know, that's, that's like the solid theological guy of the century. So, so this is not as bad as it sounds. And let me explain what Packer says. He says, if you look at Christians in previous generations, you see that they don't just, when they pray, list all of the needs one after the other. But instead, when they name their needs, they also, before God, say why these needs fit with what God desires. They give a why. Lord, do this because. And the reason Packer says this is important is, is really twofold. When we do this, when we both ask and explain why, by remembering what God wants, it starts refining and, and reorienting our prayers. And also, by being able to see how our desires coincide with God's desires, it gives us a greater peace and trust that our God actually hears us and will, will answer in love. We, we need to argue. That is, we need to name not only what we want, but why it's important. And do you notice that's exactly what we see in this psalm? Every time in this middle section there is a request, there is also a for, a because, this is why. So verse 6, 
Pour out your anger on the nations. Why? Verse 7, for they have devoured Jacob. Verse 8, do not remember our former iniquities. Why? For we are brought very low. Help us for the glory of your name. Deliver us for your name's sake. Again and again, as he is pleading, he is in some ways arguing with God. God, this is why it's important. This is why I appeal to you. This is why I believe you want to do this. And what we see as he is appealing to God is not some sort of sense of indebtedness or obligation that God might have to him. We don't see him placing himself as a victim, but rather just appealing to who God is. That's the danger, by the way. It happens so often. I've seen it firsthand with people when they move from acknowledging failure and regret to starting to experience the consequences of their failure, there can be a deep tendency to self-pity. To say, I know what I did is wrong, but why are people still so angry with me? I don't deserve this. What I did wasn't that wrong. And to start kind of expecting people to treat them differently. And there could be that victimization even before God. God, why are you being so mean? Don't do this to me. I don't deserve it. But that's not what we see here. What this psalmist appeals to is simply who God is. He says, God, please deliver me because I know you care. I know you care about us. Verse 8, let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Do you hear that? He, he appeals to God's compassion because he knows that's true of God when God reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai and Moses sees him the very first thing God says the Lord the Lord the compassionate and gracious God Lord I know that you are compassionate I know that you care we see that even more deeply don't we as people who have seen Jesus when, when Jesus early on heals many people, there's a certain point where there's a flood, there's a crowd coming to him, and he says, I have to keep moving on because I came to preach. But even as he is leaving, this leper confronts him, and the leper says, if you are willing, I know you can heal me. And Jesus looks at him, and why does he look at him? He has compassion. And so he heals him. He says, I am willing. Be clean. Later on, when, when Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb, he he grieves. Why does he grieve? Not because Lazarus is never going to rise again. Jesus knows what he's going to do. He grieves because he's compassionate. Think of that. Your God weeps for our pain. When we feel shame, when we feel far, when we realize that God has nothing in, there's no reason that we, nothing we have to offer before God to claim anything, we can still say to God, God, I'm praying simply because I know you care. I, I'm praying, I'm asking, please help me because I just know that you are compassionate. You love your people. That's a reason that's given here. And another reason is given, Lord, please rescue me because I know you care deeply about your name. Uh, do you see that? Uh, verse 9 says, For the glory of your name. And again, right after, do this for your name's sake. Scripture really clearly teaches that our God is passionate about his name. He, 
He longs to see his greatness known, his glory spread throughout all of the earth. That's why the very first prayer we pray, whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, is hallowed be your name. And this isn't because God is vain or insecure and needs to be told how great he is. Of course that's not why. It's because our God is passionately truthful and there is nothing more true than that God himself is great. And our God is passionately just, and there is nothing more righteous than that God be worshipped. And our God is passionately loving, and there is no greater gift than for us to know and enjoy the glory of God. And so God is passionate for his name. And the, the amazing and wondrous truth is that his people, that we bear his name. We carry it. If, if you have been baptized, think of what happened. When you were baptized, what happened? You were baptized into the name. I baptized you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means you now bear the name of God. Wherever you go, you take his name with you. However you represent him, you are representing the name of God, what he is so passionate for. That's, that's a sobering thing when you consider it. But it's also comforting because God is claiming responsibility for you. You bear my name. And so this psalmist can say, look, the world is looking right now and sees the people that bear your name and they are being destroyed. So for your name's sake, so that you can show your glory, rescue us, save us. That is always a prayer that is open to you. No matter what you have done, no matter how deeply you have failed, you bear God's name upon you. And so you can pray, Lord, I know I don't deserve it, but for your name's sake, so that the world around might see how gracious you are, please hear my prayer. You know, we can pray that corporately as well. I don't know if it seems this way to you, but as I look and I see what is going on in the church in our country, I think... There's a lot to grieve over. I don't know if there's ever been a time in our nation where, where the church has been viewed as lowly as it is right now, where people go, why in the world would I look to the church for help? Where, where it's mocked. And the reason this is so grievous is because when people mock the church, they are mocking not just the church, but they're looking down on the God of the church. Why would I ever look to Jesus if this is what his people look like? And that is tragic. And the sad thing is, a lot of it is our fault. We have let idolatry become part of the church. We are compromised by, by materialism, by a desire for the idols of comfort and security and prosperity. It is largely our own doing that the church is looked down on so negatively today. And yet, even still, even though we have failed, we can still say, God, for your name's sake. Why should our neighbors look and say, where is their God? Why should we follow Jesus? For your name's sake, please revive your church. Let people see your glory. We, even when we are in our darkest moments, even when we know that we have nothing to offer God, and that is always the case, but sometimes we see it most clearly, we can come to God because he cares, because he cares for his name. 
And the psalmist realizes, do you see how there is this, this kind of transition? As he moves from failure, the failure pushes him to God. He pleads with God and, and look at the hope that he finds at the very end. Verse 13, what does he say? But we, your people, do you notice how he recognizes your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. You know, this sounds so similar to so many other things we've heard in other Psalms that we can lose how extraordinary it is. As tears are flowing down his face, as he is remembering the utter destruction, as he is devastated by failure, yet now he can in confidence say, we will give thanks. God, we know that you have given us hope. We know that you will hear us. We know that we will be able to rejoice. Someday we will be able to praise you for your goodness. Through the midst of this failure, he finds hope. There's a, one more instruction I'd like us to consider from this passage. It's perhaps a little bit less obvious, but I think it's important for us to understand, and that is that we need to know that Jesus is with us in our failure. If you've looked at the bulletin cover, you know that we're calling this series The Songs of Jesus. And that's not just because we think it's a catchy title. It's because this quite literally is the case. When Jesus was on this earth, the Psalms were his songbook. This is what he would sing week after week and join in in heartfelt praise and all the other things the Psalm gives us, which means he sang Psalm 79. He sang these words. He grieved in these opening verses for what took place. And he even named, he says, he even with the people around him acknowledged, asking, Lord, atone for our sins. Now when he's saying that, we know that he's not confessing his own sins because Jesus never sinned, but he is in solidarity with us, his people. And so with us, he is grieving. With us, he was pleading. With us, he was crying out to his father, how long, O Lord? In fact, I, I suspect this song was on his heart when he was on the cross. How long, O Lord, will you be angry with us forever? Because on the cross, he was in complete solidarity for, with us. He was bearing our failure upon his shoulders. He was experiencing God's anger on our behalf. How long, O oh Lord, he prayed as he endured the wrath of God, will you be angry with us forever? And finally, as he breathed his final breath, came the answer, it is finished. God cares. He cares about his son. He cares about his son who bears his name. He would not allow death to defeat his son, so he rose his son from the dead. In doing so, he declared forgiveness to all failures who unite with Christ. Here's why this is important for you. When you fail, and let me just say, that's all of you. That's all of us. When we confess that we are sinners, that's just another way of saying that we have failed. When you 
have failed, when you will fail, you will sometimes feel like you are completely alone in your grief and your shame and your anger, but it is not true. Jesus is there with you. He took on our failure. He is there praying with us. He is there crying out with us, how long, O Lord? Because he was one of us. And so when we pray, we know he's right beside us, and we know that God will hear us. We can say, Lord, not for our sake, but because your son is praying with us, please hear our prayers for your name's sake. And when you know that, you can, like this psalmist, know in verse 13 that we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. I'd like to give us a few minutes just to kind of respond in silent prayer. Some of us are feeling the weight of failures. Some of us, it's not as existentially present, but we all know ways that we have failed. I invite you to take some time in silence, to allow our different failures, ways that we are not who we're supposed to be, to drive us to God in a time of confession and calling out, and then I will lead us after that. So let's spend some time in, in silent prayer. Lord God, with the psalmist, even with Jesus, we pray, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand to hear the good news of the gospel. From another psalm, we're told, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Friends, hear the good news. God answers this prayer in his son, Jesus Christ, who made atonement for our sins. God remembers our sins no more. You are forgiven. Thanks be to God.